hey, you and I, we tend to settle and set the wrong goals. We're going to talk about that. Overworking is not leading to more production. And then, if you're dyslexic, you have a huge advantage in the workplace. We'll unpack it next. Welcome to the Ken Coleman Show, helping you win at work, helping you win in your leadership, helping you win in the contribution that you want to make in the world of work. That means more money, more meaning. All right, so let's get to this. You and I, we set the wrong kind of goals. Wrong kind of goals. What what does that mean? Do you know the nickname people have for the second Friday in January? I didn't know this until recently. It's called Quitter's Day. In a world of quiet quitting, this is probably a national holiday, and it's completely new to me. It's the day that people are most likely to give up on their New Year's resolutions, thus the term quitting day. Now, the research shows us that 91% of Americans who make a New Year's resolution won't be successful at keeping them. And you've probably seen things written on this before, so maybe this is going to be a a reminder, maybe a challenge. I hope it is. There's a lot of theories about why, but I want to give you my take. I think most resolutions around the New Year's, nothing more than a goal, but they fail because people make that resolution, set that goal from a place of pain. When people are prompted to think of goals for the new year their minds immediately go to where does my life suck in other words i'm looking at pain points and that's a that's a completely natural instinct Uh, for example uh, i'll have some fun with this one because this is from my past now alex you don't know this i have to pull up some pictures but uh about 15 years ago i was 35 pounds heavier than i am right now i was right at 200 pounds so i'm a little guy what that meant is i look like i've been stung by bees i was just swollen okay not healthy for me okay and and let me tell you how i set a goal to lose weight i saw a christmas card picture i looked at it, i was like good grief man i am chubby bunny and you know what the pain, the sting of how I thought I looked turned into a resolution to lose weight. By the way, it didn't work. It didn't work. You know why? Because I was like a lot of people, millions of people, by the way, they say, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. I'm not going to look like that ever again in a picture. But statistically, you are going to fail because the emotion, which feels like conviction, but it's not conviction. The emotion is, oh gosh, I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I'm mad. I'm sad. Whatever it is. So, okay, I'm going to go work out and I'm going to get in shape. But once the emotion passes, and by the way, it looks like it's about the second Friday of (laughs) January. You're like, you know what? I don't care how I look. I don't like being sore. I don't like getting up at 6 a.m. So what do you do? You quit. So what's the solution? I think you got to take the pain points out of the equation. I think you got to use, I'm making this rule up. It's called the 25-year rule. What do I mean by that? Instead of what do I want to look like in 25 days, I think you got to have the question, what do I want to look like and feel like and act like 25 years from now? Who do you want to be physically, relationally, professionally, 
financially in 25 years. This takes the emotion out of it. And I think it replaces the emotion, which is the short-term pain point. I think it replaces it with conviction, which is this is a vision. So you know what I think? I think we're too busy setting goals. Millions of Americans are going to quit their New Year's resolution because it's an emotionally based goal. It's not a conviction-based vision. You need a vision, not a goal. You need a vision for your future. My friend Dr. Henry Cloud calls it a desired future, a place of hope, a place beyond the current disappointments, the current resentments. Now, you're playing the long game at this point. So what do you think is the better game? Is the better game, who do I want to be 25 years from now? Or is the better game, who do I want to be 25 days from now? The long game is going to require that you get a vision in place and then the goals come from a place of purpose, not pain. And now conviction comes in and I've got my eyes set on something that requires more than a goal. It really requires commitment. And then the goals become something that are very important. And I'm not in any way uh, trying to get cute here. Goals matter. But goals are mile markers that I need to hit if I am going to reach that 25-year vision. In other words, top of the mountain. A purposeful vision is going to help you mitigate for, plan for the delays. I'll give you another example. I, I've, I had the privilege to interview and uh, meet, have dinner with um, Allison Levine, who was the first female uh, leader of an all-female group that went up to Mount Everest. This is a this is a woman who's serious. She's one of the most sought after corporate speakers in America because of her accomplishments. And as I had dinner with her and several other speakers, we were at an event together. And as we sat, I just turned the whole dinner into an interview, and I began to ask her question after question after question about you know the the actual tactical story, her story of leading that group of women up to the summit of Mount Everest. And so understand that just like the twenty five year plan is a long-term goal. The idea of summiting Mount Everest is also a very serious long-term goal. And so they're going, we are trying to get to literally the summit of the highest peak in the world. Okay, so they've got a plan. Okay, but that plan is going to change. They have goals. Those goals will change on the climb because of weather, physical health, demand that the goals sometimes are going to have to get adjusted. So our goal is to be here by day 15 or whatever. And if we don't get there, then we're setting a new goal. We have to adjust. But if the goal is just that, then when you get frustrated that you don't reach there by day 15, then you're done. No, the goal is not to, the real vision is what's driving. The goal is just a part of the mile marker. So the goal isn't, well, to get here by day 15. No. The true vision is to reach the summit. The goals will change. The goals will need to change. But if it's the goal that is driving my action, there's a good chance it's just like a resolution. I'm not going to, I got to have something greater than a goal. And a vision and purpose is greater than the goal. Then the goals will allow you to stay with it. But if you have no vision, guess what you are? You're the person who wakes up every year 
sometime at the end of one year or the beginning of the year, go, okay, I need to set some goals for this year. But there's no vision for your life. Here's what I mean. Back to the idea of the 25-year plan. I'm going to get a gym membership, and I'm going to start working out five days a week. That's the goal. It's a good goal. There's no vision attached to it. The vision ought to be, I want to lose 50 pounds. I want to be in the best shape of my life. I want to be healthy as I get older. I want to have this current health situation be eliminated because of me being in shape, losing 50 pounds, or whatever it is. That's a vision. And when that's the vision, the goal of working out five times a week is a lot easier to maintain because I'm not trying to hit a number of days in the gym. I'm trying to transform my physical health. Do you see the difference? That's the game. So be a person of vision, and then you will be a person of action. But when we try to be a person of action, minus a vision, you know what we become? A person of frustration. Action minus vision always leads to frustration. But a vision that inspires action, you ready? Oh, this leads to completion. This leads to fruition. This leads to multiplication. This leads to, I could go on and on and on, all of the words that represent growth and momentum and a better life, I can go down the list. But goals without a vision, it's going to lead to frustration. Please, please, please rewind, listen, and set a plan. It's going to change your life. Hey, high school seniors and parents of high school seniors, it's almost graduation time. And if you're not sure about next steps, I want you to listen to this. Coding skills are essential in today's workforce. And my friends at Bethel Tech can help you start a new career really fast and do it cheap. It only takes nine months to complete a Bethel Tech course in UI, UX design, full stack development, data science, or cybersecurity. And your young person can get over a thousand hours of experience in a collaborative environment and then get placed. The average starting salary for a junior developer is $66,000. And the field is projected to grow by 22% over the next five years. Software development is a career with an enormously bright future. And right now, Bethel Tech is offering you 10% off if you watch or listen to the Ken Coleman show and you pay cash. So go to BethelTech.net slash Ken Coleman, BethelTech.net slash Ken Coleman right now for details. Terms and conditions do apply. Welcome back to the Kid Coleman Show. Hey, if you're enjoying the program, will you help us? You can help us grow by subscribing to the video channel here on YouTube, liking the videos, sharing something that uh, has helped you, and uh, via the podcast app that you're listening to, give us a five-star review and uh, a follow. We would be grateful. All right, let's talk about working more to accomplish more. Does it work? The answer is no. 
Employees who feel pressured to work after hours aren't as productive as people who stick to their nine to five. So for those of you who are going, I just want to quiet quit. You don't have to quiet quit. You know what you have to do? You have to say no to some things. You have to come up with some systems and focus on the things that really matter. I can promise you anybody that is overworking is not doing a good job of saying no and is not doing a good job of prioritizing what really matters most. I could just tell you. I could I could shut the whole statement down right there, walk away, and for those of you that are willing to dig into those two things, that would be enough. So I'm going to say it again. If you're overworking, yes, your leader is not leading you properly. I want to acknowledge that. But let's take some personal responsibility, shall we? And the personal responsibility for someone who is being overworked is beyond, hey, I got to talk to my leader and we got to figure out, but what can you do? I'm going to tell you something. I've been in leadership. I've talked to so many of you, thousands upon thousands of you that are in a situation where you feel overworked. Can I just tell you something? You have more control than you think you do. You are saying yes to stuff that you should say no to. And you aren't prioritizing your time. You say, you say, how do you know that? Well, I'm going to dive into it in a second, but I'm telling you this, you're in too many meetings. And you aren't looking at your work from a priority standpoint. You're looking at your work from a productivity standpoint. And when we focus on productivity versus priority, it is very easy to get overworked. All right, there's my there, there's the hook. All right, now let's dive into this. Am I right or am I just feeling froggy today? Slack did a survey of, you ready for this? This is a huge survey. 10,333 full-time desk workers in the United States, Australia, France, Germany, Japan, and the UK in August and September of 2023. And here's what they found. 33% of desk workers were logging on outside of their company standard hours with over half saying it's because they feel pressured and not because they want to. Of course. The question is, why do they feel the pressure? I want to acknowledge that some leaders are pressuring this, but some of it, maybe even as much as half of it, if I were to coach you one-on-one, I bet you I could find that this is self-imposed pressure. Why? Because I think you're focused on productivity, not priority. More on that. I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep hitting that, and I'm going to come back to that very tactically. All right. Now, those who feel like they've got to work extra hours are 20% less productive than those who stop working at the end of their standard day. So, there. Let's just say this: If you take nothing else out of this, but by the way, this is a survey. If you take nothing else out of this, leave the work at work. <laughs> I mean, now we got to get some mental hacks here. And we're going to have to figure out how to come up with some systems. So the mental part is first, and then the systems part is second, to be able to leave work at work. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I do this very well. And and, and I will tell you, if if you if you talk to Alex Chaffield or anybody that works with me on a day-to-day basis, I am not a systems guy. I'm a flow guy. I got my own process of flowing. It's not perfect. But let me tell you what I'm not doing. And I am in a high-pressure gig. I leave work at work. Because I don't think I could do what I do if I was not leaving work at work. So, this is this is my own testimony on this. Now, more into the data. People who are working extra hours 
And by the way, this isn't mandated. This is, they're feeling pressure. They reported two times as likely to have work-related stress, two times as likely to have lower satisfaction at work, two times more to burn out. Need I go any further on what the physical aspects of that are? Your mental health and your physical health are going to keep getting worse. Now, people that are overworked or overworking are 50% more likely to say they have too many priorities. Oh, there's that word again. Too many priorities. So what's going on? They don't know how to say no. They don't know how to say no. Or maybe they do know how to say no, but they aren't brave enough to say no. Now, here's the big culprit. You know what the number one sapper of time is and priorities for people at work? Meetings. <laughs> I'm laughing because I saw everybody shake their head in the booth, too. I mean, let me tell you something. No organization is immune to this. Uh, you know, if I were to take my pencil, if this was a magic pencil, Alex and I would go like this and something cheesy, and I would go, poof. And I could change one thing today all over America and around the world in the workplace just for fun. For one day, it would be no meetings. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You would still have to get the work done, right? So whatever your job is, you would still have to do it, but you could not and you would not have any meetings, Now, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot. He hates this, but I'm actually going to do it because you can handle it. All right, you produce two shows. You have a lot going on at this place. You got a lot going on. And and, and full disclaimer, this isn't bashing Ramsey. Ramsey's a great organization. I'm just saying, we all do too many meetings. I think we could all agree. Does that scenario sound unrealistic and Pollyanna to you, or does it sound very legit? And what I want you to do before you answer, I want you to think about what I just said. You would have to do for a full day or maybe a full week everything you do, like your, your job of producing, but you weren't having meetings. Now, that doesn't mean you can't talk to people on the team, you can't email, you can't, but I'm talking like you aren't going to every meeting that you go to on a normal rhythm, normal day. Does that sound realistic to you? Is that positive, negative, or you're unsure? I'd say it'd get replaced with a personal, just a face-to-face -face conversation. Be a lot more of those. That would increase, probably meetings decrease, yeah. Okay, but my point is, do you feel that you would be less productive or more productive if you didn't have all the meetings, but when you needed to talk to somebody, you talked to them? Yeah, probably more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think my point is you have Slack, you have a text, you flow have state. cell phone. You can enter a flow state, too. That's the issue. Thank you for saying that. So instead of all the meetings, you're sitting there getting actual work done and you go, do I need to communicate this right now at 10 o'clock for an hour? I'll bet you the answer is no. Now, I don't listen. I don't want to hold myself up like I'm but I'm going to tell you something. I despise meetings. Most of them, not all of them. I like creative meetings. I want to make sure our content meetings I enjoy. Because we're being creative, um, and those are super important. I believe group collaboration, call it a meeting, but group collaboration is, uh, that would be the only meetings I would protect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't replace those meetings. But let me tell you this, 
And I'm and let me also say, I'm sure that I've irritated a lot of people probably yesterday, the last week, probably irritated Alex, but I'm the king of the text. I'm the king of the quick call. And I am the king of the show up at your desk. I'm the king of that. Yes or no? Alex, I'm the king of that. Now, let me just tell you something. When I do that, I may have interrupted your workflow for a little bit, but it's far less of an interruption than a meeting. And it's far more effective in a meeting. Is this also true? Tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, 100%. All right, then. I've made my case. Um, one of the things that we've got to do here is start to take meetings as a serious threat to your productivity, which is affecting your priorities, and it's making you work after hours. I think, can I just tell you, leaders, leaders around the world, leaders, Ricola, hey, leaders, what if you drastically tested a, a new meeting strategy? What's the worst that can happen? Hey, you know what you can do? You can go right back to filling up your Outlook calendar with your freaking meetings. I sure would try it. Less meetings and more conversations. Gosh, it's all I need. I think it'll work for you. Special segment, dear to my heart. This is very personal, and I I hope this is encouraging. If you are a dyslexic person, you have dyslexia. I don't know how the proper way to say it, but before you get offended, uh, I have a child that uh, deals with dyslexia, has it, and brilliant, brilliant child, but a lot of hardship with it. So I'm coming at this topic with a lot of experience parenting someone that struggles with it. And it's very important. But here's the headline. People with dyslexia can bring unique strengths and advantages to the workplace. And yet, I don't think that they're allowed that opportunity. And I think that's got to change. Dyslexia is the most common learning disability in the world. And up to 15 to 20% of the population has a language-based learning disability that has very similar um, challenges as dyslexia. And again, if I could, if you are dyslexic, I would love for you to lean into this. If you are a parent of a child with dyslexia, would you please lean into this? Because I think this is enormously important. If you are a leader and you think you have someone on your team who's dyslexic, would you please lean into this? I think this is vital. Now, just a quick overview. Dyslexia can result in a lot of challenges with details, organization, time management. Reading and writing can be very challenging and, listen to me, very exhausting. Uh, Effective communication can be an issue. Comprehension of complicated instructions. This can really flare up for someone with dyslexia. But if, as an employer an educator, or a parent. We are unaware. And by the way, the education system is already beating the crap out of these folks. 
our American education system is beating the crap out of dyslexic children to the point that they are feeling beaten up. They are exhausted. They are uh, isolated. They are made fun of. Listen, I've been there. I have held my child sobbing in tears. They are feeling like they are completely stupid because of the one-size-fits-all classroom. Now, that is not my soapbox today. But I am telling you that if it is true in the education system, then it is true in the corporate workplace where what is seemingly a deficiency is a disguised proficiency. It's true. Let me explain. Talk to any expert. Go do your homework on this. Dyslexia provides a very unique frame of reference or point of view than non-dyslexic thinkers. As a matter of fact, while I'm doing this, Alex, pull up for me. Uh, famous, successful people that struggle with dyslexia. Because I know a few, but I, I I want, if you could, well, in just a minute, I'm going to call on you. I want you to give me five or six. It's If you don't know this, it's going to blow your mind. All right, but here's what I want you to understand. Having dyslexia does not mean that you aren't intelligent. Having dyslexia, I mean, you can have the... You can have a, the most challenging type of dyslexia because there's all many all, all different forms that challenge people in different ways. But you ready for this? You are average to above average intelligence, no matter how challenging it is. So let's let's blow that out of the water. Do you got the list? Because I want to I want to drive this point home. Go ahead, Alex. Give us some of the the most successful people that struggle with dyslexia, and you tell me if you think it's an intelligence issue. Go ahead. We've got Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper, yeah, Rob, great, great journalist. Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Kira Knightley. Kira, both great actors. Albert Einstein. I, hello. Pablo Picasso. Picasso. Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, Richard Branson. Yeah, Richard Branson's one of my favorite. George Washington. I didn't know that about Washington, but Richard Branson blows me away because you're talking about a billionaire business guy who doesn't write emails, doesn't wear shoes. Uh, I read his book. Uh, his biography, mm-hmm. and he talks a lot about dyslexia. So thank you for that, Alex. Here's my point. What's special about each one of those names that Alex just read? To a person, if you were to read their biographies or talk to people that knew them, worked with them, understood them, they would tell you that they have an unbelievable brilliance and a unique way of seeing the world. You heard those names, Albert Einstein? Great actors and actresses. Robin Williams, one of the greatest comedic minds of all time. The dude saw the world differently. All right, let's let's now bring this back to the workplace. If you understand that dyslexics have superpowers when they when you talk about visual thinking and seeing the big picture, they often can look at a complicated scenario and immediately simplify it. Gee, I wonder how that could be used in the workplace. They're great at coming up with original solutions. Great with unique ideas. Great to amazing problem-solving skills. Creative thinking. Think in the abstract. 
super innovative. They're resilient. And is there a greater work quality than resilience? Another more popular word in today's world is grit in describing resilience. Why do they have so much grit? Well, back to what I said earlier, that the education system has beaten the crap out of them. They have to show up every day at school and try to not look dumb, even though they're brilliant. Can you imagine going to school every day feeling like you were less than, dumb, stupid, no intelligence, being made fun of? The grit. You got one way of doing everything. It's a one-size-fit-all education system, and your your brain's coming in there going, uh, it's kind it's kind of like it, it, it's like basic math, and then the idiot bureaucrats came up with Common Core, and and we were all like the rest of us who do normal math were like, I don't get it. A dyslexic comes into that vanilla one-size-fits-all industrial like assembly line education, and they they're like, I don't get it. And because they don't fit neatly in there, we go, well, there's something wrong with you. You get to ride the short bus. You go over in this class and you do this. And we're actually pushing the Albert Einsteins to isolation and frustration. My goodness gracious. We're pushing the Robin Williams to isolation and frustration. We're pushing the Kira Knightleys to frustration and isolation. We're pushing Richard Branson to isolation and frustration. And, and 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 then in the workplace, guess what? They got to get a job, and so they've been treated this way, and they've been shoved through the system, and then they get to the workplace, and we treat them the same way. And 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 some leaders are are overlooking brilliant problem solvers, creative strategists, unique problem solvers. Now let's get tactical for just a minute, leaders. There's a stigma on this. So how do we figure it out? We've got to know our people. And we've got to have accommodations. Not only do we have to have accommodations on the things that are very difficult, it's something simple as making sure that they don't ever have to send in some public report, written report. There's a way around that. Come on, let's give them dignity. But, but hey, this is what I preach. Get them in the right seat on the bus, leaders, and watch them thrive. Watch them absolutely blossom and bring so much to the table that you never even knew they could bring. Man, let's harness this power. Listen, let me go back to this, leaders. 20% of the population has dyslexia. (laughs) This is a hidden force to do something amazing. Harness it. Lead it. Love them. Give them a shot. Some of them are just waiting, and they could literally change the future of your business. So to my dyslexic friends, get your chin up, shoulders back. Ain't nothing wrong with you. This is The Ken Coleman Show. Thanks for listening to The Ken Coleman Show. For more, you can find the show on demand wherever you listen to podcasts and watch the show on YouTube. You can also find Ken across all social media by following at Ken Coleman.